All right. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, we are almost done with the book of Ecclesiastes. Next week will be the final week um, in the Ecclesiastes series that we started um, just about 15 weeks ago. So um, it's been uh, hopefully something that has been very enjoyable uh, to everyone and and has been uh, hopefully a blessing. Uh, And this is yet another... Um, uh, another one of those times when the sermon is for me, okay? So this is, this is me, again, talking to me. Um, I need this. Maybe you don't need this, but I need this. So that's why, that's why the Lord put it on my heart uh, tonight. Uh, raise your hand if you ever were interested in Greek mythology, I loved Greek mythology when I was in high school, especially. The stories are so rich and imaginative, and, and, and the, the characters in these stories are, are, are at many points hashtag relatable, and you know they capture things that in real life are, are, are so common, and yet they attribute these, these experiences to, to deities. Um, and so in the pantheon of gods of Greek mythology, in the, in the stories that were written, um, there was one in particular that stands out to me as being painful to watch. A- and that is the myth of Sisyphus. Um, raise your hand if you're familiar with the myth of Sisyphus. Um, Sisyphus was... Uh, a very mischievous uh, god. He, uh, the, the stories are kind of conflicting. Um, some of the accounts tell different things about Sisyphus. What is uh, agreed upon in the canon of, of Greek mythology is that Sisyphus was a, a trickster and a cheater and a liar who, through various tales, cheated death at least twice. Um, there was one story where um, one of the gods was sent to bring him to the underworld and, and chain him uh, to lock him into the underworld. And Sisyphus brought this god down into the underworld and, and he was about to be chained to the wall and he says to this god, can you just show me how these chains work um, just, just to be sure? And, and this other god is like, all right, sure, this is how they work. And he put him on his own hand and, and, and Sisyphus locked him there and was like, peace, see you later. And he left this god in the underworld and he came back. And so he continued to cheat death over and over again. And so at one point it became clear they got to call in the big guns, okay? There is no longer any room for lesser gods to be taking care of Sisyphus. Zeus himself has to step in. All right, so big daddy Zeus steps in and he himself casts judgment on Sisyphus. And what happens with Sisyphus is he's taken down to the underworld and, and somehow in a way that he can no longer escape. And he is handed this curse that he must carry out for all of eternity. He's taken to the base of a mountain in the underworld. And he's given this boulder. And the, the punishment that Sisyphus has is that he has to, to push this boulder up to the top of the mountain. And as soon as he gets to the top of the mountain, the boulder is going to roll all the way back down to the bottom. And so he has to walk down to the bottom of the mountain, 
and start pushing the boulder all the way back up. And he'll push it all the way back up the mountain. And then as soon as he gets to the top, it'll roll back down all the way to the bottom. Over and over and over and over again. For all of eternity, the curse that Sisyphus has is pushing this boulder up the mountain. Over and over and over. And nothing ever changes. Nothing ever will. No, no matter how many times he does it, it's never going to end. He has to continue doing this over and over and over. And so it is this curse of futility. It is this curse of never being finished with a meaningless, purposeless task. It is, as Solomon would say, bubbles. It is vanity. It is meaningless that Sisyphus has to keep pushing the boulder over and over and over again. The truth is that there are times in life where we feel like Sisyphus, right? We feel like no matter how many times I keep doing something, it gets undone right away. I have to keep plugging away and I never get far. My feet are stuck in the mud. I'm never advancing. I'm never progressing. I'm never moving forward. And so it kind of leads us back to this question that we've asked and addressed a few times, which is, what is the point? What's the point? Why am I doing this? Why, why do I keep plugging away at this? Why do I keep putting my effort into this when it doesn't accomplish anything? For the first six chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon wanted to hammer home the truth that life under the sun, if life under the sun is all that there is, is indeed pointless. He, he taught us that without God, life is pointless. So when asking the question, what's the point? He wants to get us there to that, that well, what's the point then if, if that's all that there is? But it's also possible to ask the question of what's the point in the opposite scenario. Instead of saying, what's the point I'm going to die anyway, it's also possible to ask the question, what's the point of doing anything on earth because I'm going to go to heaven anyway? So let me, let me break that down a little bit to make sure that we're all on the same page. Solomon has done a great job of proving to us the vanity of life under the sun, right? If this is all that there is, it's all empty. So the goal is to get a person to look up, to, to look up, to cast their eyes upward and say, well, what's beyond the sun? If, if what's under the sun is pointless, well, then what's beyond the sun? And, and what Solomon has been showing us is that when a person does that, when, when a person turns their eyes upward, they can actually have an enjoyable life under the sun that is filled with purpose, so Solomon's point has never been to throw out the importance of life on earth. He, he's never meant to, to, to leave us in a place where life on earth is void of meaning. He's been trying to show us how to fill our lives on earth with eternal purpose. But it is also possible to take that point that Solomon is making and take it too far. It is possible to be so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good. Now typically I hate that phrase because being heavenly minded should make us the most earthly good. 
but follow what, uh, what I'm trying to get at here. It's possible to take what Solomon is saying and get us to a place that he didn't intend for us to go. It's possible to say, if this life on earth and the 70 years or so that I get is done, and whatever I do here is lost to the annals of time, why even try? I'm just going to spend the rest of eternity in heaven anyway. It is possible to say, well, listen, I know that my life isn't going to stem the tide. My life is not going to fix the brokenness. So what's the point? Heaven is really what matters. To use an example, I have a friend who taught in a public school system in Texas after she graduated college. And this school system was woefully broken. It was woefully underfunded. It was poorly managed. It was, it was setting kids up for failure. The administration of this school system carried more about kids scoring high enough on standardized testing so that the school wouldn't be penalized than they cared about kids actually succeeding in life, right? There, there's high school kids who can barely do basic educational skills like reading, writing, and arithmetic. And so this, this school system was as broken as a school system could possibly be. And so my friend is thrust into this broken system. And, and she finds apathy everywhere she looks. And for a while, she threw herself headfirst into this pursuit with passion as a teacher. She was determined that she would stem the tide. She was determined that she would turn things around. She would push for reform. She would, uh, she would get the wheels turning to get these kids what they wanted, to, to try to change this system so that they could get the education that they needed, so that they could get the investment from leadership that they needed. And she tried with all that she had, and she was met with nothing but opposition. She was told that she was too idealistic, that, you know, her, her intentions are pure, but listen, That's just not how the world works. We don't have the funding for that. We don't have the time for that. We would love for that to happen, but you know what? It's just not possible. The administration did not care. A lot of the kids didn't care. A lot of the kids' families didn't care. So she worked harder. She pressed in deeper. And all that happened is she grew more and more fatigued. And eventually, passion gave way to pain. In her situation, no matter how hard she worked, she was not going to reverse this broken system. No matter how, how hard she worked, she was not going to turn this school around. She, she was not going to be able to, to take what was there and make it into something better. No matter how many times she pushed the boulder up the hill, it was just going to keep back rolling down again. And so I remember having many conversations with her while she was there in Texas, trying to encourage her while she was very understandably asking the question, what's the point? I'm not accomplishing anything here. I'm wasting my time, even though I am trying with eternal purpose in mind to invest in people. 
I am trying with eternal perspective to make a difference. I am trying to invest. I'm I'm trying to serve. I'm trying to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And I'm being met with nothing but opposition. What's the point? Now, let's say that she was successful in turning that school around. That would be awesome, right? But there's a thousand other school systems all around the country that are just like that one. It's also possible that if she turned the school system around after she left, it would fall back into brokenness. This school system is is kind of a good example of the world that we live in, right? We live in this broken system. In this system that's filled with apathy. It is filled with people in positions of power who couldn't give a rip about the success of the masses. They just want to keep the machine turning. They just want to gain for themselves. And we know from scripture, we know from scripture that the only thing that's going to turn this world around, the only thing that, that, that's going to fix this is when Jesus comes back and he sets up his reign here as the official king of the earth. So it would be very easy for us in the face of that to throw up our hands and say, What's the point? Why work toward anything? Why try to better this world? Why try to stop the inevitable? No matter what I do, I cannot reduce the number of net loss. I cannot turn around the brokenness. It is always working against me. No matter what I put into it, it always fights back. Or tell me if you know this one from your life. Um, On Thursday, Allison and I spent a ton of time in the kitchen doing dishes. I even cleaned out the fridge. There was some stuff in there that uh, had been in there for a while. And uh, as the King James said, it stinketh. And so I spent some time cleaning out the fridge and I cleaned those dishes. And we had everything washed, and the kitchen was spotless. But then we had to keep using the kitchen because we lived there, and we had to eat. And so dirty dishes began to pile up in the sink. And today I walk in, and it is just as dirty as it was before we started cleaning on Thursday. And it makes me go, what's the point? I just cleaned this. What was the point of all that work that we did just 72 hours ago? This broken world, no matter what we accomplish, is always working against us to undo everything that we've done. Every dish that we clean, every piece of clothing that we launder, every weed that we pull is going to get dirty again and it's going to sprout up anew. It is endless toil. No matter how many times we push the boulder up the mountain, no matter how many times we get it to the top, it rolls back down again. Now we know that after we live, after this time under the sun, we're going to be spending eternity in perfection with God. We know, because we have eternal perspective, because we have the truth, we know that eventually God is going to fix everything. It's not going to remain broken. It's not going to remain in this state. It will one day be perfect. It will one day be as it ought to be. He will undo 
every broken thing. He will right every single wrong. He will take every sad thing and make it come untrue. So, with that knowledge, we might be tempted to just pack it in, stop trying, and wait for heaven to come. This is why Solomon writes chapter 11. After Solomon has accomplished turning our eyes upward to see that there's more beyond the sun, in chapter 11, he turns our eyes back downward, armed with that knowledge so that we can make the most of our time here. He's trying to make sure that we no longer ask the question, what is the point? So, Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, and the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet. And it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is bubbles. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are bubbles. So briefly, let me summarize this chapter. And then we'll look at the pieces in detail. Here is what Solomon is telling us in these 10 verses. Live your life to the fullest. Invest. Don't be scared. Don't wait for the perfect conditions to exist before you act on anything. Work hard. Enjoy every day as much as you can. Don't worry. Don't be anxious and stressed. You know that God is in control. Find the good in every single day. Be steady and steadfast, not allowing good things or bad things to bring you too high or too low. Don't be controlled by your emotions. Whatever happens, happens. And it's out of your control. Live every day with joy to the fullest. Because you are living it for the Lord. 
So if you're taking notes, here is point number one. Be wise, work hard, trust God. Be wise, work hard, trust God. Now, in the face of futility, in the face of Sisyphus at the bottom of the mountain looking at yet another ascent up the hill after doing it so many times over and over and over and nothing changing, it's understandable if, if he would get mad for, for you to say to him, just keep going, dude. Just keep going. It's all going to be okay. Nobody wants that message, right? Nobody wants to just hear platitudes. Nobody wants to just hear a pat on the back and everything is hunky-dory. But what Solomon is telling us here, again, armed with eternal perspective, is that this life is not meaningless. Remember, he does not want us to think that this life is without purpose. He does not want us to think that this life does not accomplish anything. And in that punishment for Sisyphus, it truly was pointless. That's what made it a punishment. It was not accomplishing anything. And so the difference between Sisyphus and us is that it might seem like we're just pushing a boulder up a mountain over and over and over, and we're not accomplishing anything. Visually, we look around and we're not seeing anything change. We're not seeing the fruit of our hard work. We've been plugging away and plugging away and plugging away and plugging away, and I got nothing in return so far. I'm Sisyphus. Solomon is telling us, now remember, life is not meaningless. Life without God is meaningless. If this is all that there is, then you really are like Sisyphus. But we know that it's not. And so, knowing that it's not, knowing in faith that there is more, that this life does have purpose, be wise, work hard, trust God. Here in the first few verses... He gives a couple of different analogies for how we ought to live. The first is investing. The second is farming. Where he says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. There he is talking about investing in merchant trading, right? So he, he's referring to merchant ships going off with investment. And, and the hope is at some point, those ships are going to come back with return. When, when you're doing your business, and, and he's talking about diversifying your portfolio here, giving a portion to seven or even to eight, because you don't know one of those ships might sink. That's life. One of those ships might get robbed by, by pirates. That's life. So diversify, don't put all your eggs in one basket, and perhaps after many days, it will come back. So, so he talks about investing there, and then the second thing he talks about is, is farming. He talks about clouds being full of rain and, and, and observing the wind and not sowing and not reaping. Farming is also another kind of a long-term investment, right? Right? One that takes a lot of hard work, takes a lot of patience, without seeing any immediate return. You put seeds in the ground, and then you bury them under dirt, and then you have to spend a long, long time 
getting nothing back. You water them artificially or you wait for rain to fall for good weather. You take care of weeds. You, you try to eliminate critters coming and stealing what you, have, uh, what you have planted. But for a long time, a long time, you gotta wait and see absolutely nothing. For a long time, you gotta wait shore side after you've sent out all of your investment to see, am I gonna get anything back from this? And what Solomon is talking about here are long-term investments that may or may not pay off or reward the way that you think, but it is wise to trust God and do it anyway. It is wise to trust God and do it anyway. And this, by the way, is not just blind hope, okay? This is not just hoping like a shot in the dark, okay? I I hate the term blind faith because typically what blind faith means is that you have no tangible thing to put your hand on. You are just hoping against hope that that you're going to hit something. That's not what blind faith That's not what what, what true faith is in scripture. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, being certain of what we do not see. Certainty is not a shot in the dark. My daughter, I I guess I should say my older daughter. I'm, I'm not used to saying that yet. My older daughter, Marisol, one of the things that she loves to do is jump off of stuff and have me catch her, okay? She's getting older, which means she's also getting bigger, which also means she's getting harder to catch. But by the grace of God, up to this point, I have not yet dropped her. And so what does she continue to do? Jump. Because she believes, based on what she knows from prior experience, dad's going to catch me. He's never dropped me before. Now, sometimes she might have a little bit of hesitancy, right? Like, like today, she asked me to carry her downstairs. So I lifted her up, and I'm carrying her down the stairs. And, and we have uh, on, our, um, uh, on our wall, as we go down the stairs, we have a play like a champion today sign, like Notre Dame football team. And, and every day when I carry her downstairs, she hits the sign. I love it. So I've got her in my arms like this, and, and I lift her up to, to help her hit the sign. And she goes, oh, Dad, I thought you were going to drop me. And I look down at her and I'm like, has daddy ever dropped you? Even once? And she's like, no, no you haven't. And so she's going to keep on jumping until, God forbid, I drop her. Hopefully it'll never happen. But she continues to have faith that's not blind. It's faith that is certain of what she does not yet see. So here in these analogies, investing in farming, these are not blind shots in the dark. These are proven ways that we have seen in the real world to receive return on our labor. These are proven ways to see return for our toil. Even if the harvest at times is not what we would like it to be. Even if the fruit that we get back is not as plentiful as we would like. Even if there are seasons in which there's a drought and there's no harvest whatsoever, even in the times where it does not go the way that we think that it ought, we continue to go. 
We continue to work. We continue to plant. We continue to invest. We continue to set our our bread on the water and our seed in the ground because we know God is in control. God God has put me here to do this. God has gifted me with this passion. He's gifted me with this talent. He's he's gifted me in this area and he's told me, plant here, invest here, do this. And you might be doing it for a long, long time before you see any tangible return. You might be doing it for a long, long time and seeing nothing change. You may even do it until the day you die and see nothing, like the missionary story that we talked about last week. If you missed that, go onto our, our, our podcast and listen to last week's sermon. But we have to keep investing, keep trying, because that is what the master has set us here to do. In the New Testament, Jesus tells the parable of the talents. And he says that a master gathers three servants together. And to the one he gives one talent, to the one he gives three talents, and and to the other he gives five. And then he goes off on a long journey. And when the master returns, the, the, the servant to whom he gave five talents comes to him and says, Master, I took the five talents that you've given me, and I've turned it into ten Here's the 10. And the master looks at the servant and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your reward. And to the servant to whom he gave three talents, the the, the servant says, master, I've taken the the talents that you gave me and and I've turned it into five. Here's the five talents. And the master says, "Well, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your reward. And then he gets to the final servant, the one that he gave one talent to. And and, and that that servant says, Master, I was afraid. I, I knew that you were a hard man. I, I knew that, that you were a, a hard worker, that, that you judged harshly, and I was afraid. I, I didn't want to lose the, this thing that you gave me, and so I buried it in the ground. Here, here's what you gave me. And what does the master say to that servant? He looks at that servant and he says, you wicked, lazy servant. At the very least, you could have put it in the bank and gotten interest back. Instead, you just sat on it. And he cast him out, he says, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That servant lives in this attitude where he says, I was too afraid to do anything. I I knew I couldn't guarantee any kind of result. I knew that life is bubbles. I knew that there's no guarantee, so, so I just sat on it and I waited because I knew, well, you know, heaven is on the other side, so why try to push this boulder over and over and over again? I, I just kind of sat here and waited. Solomon says, uh-uh, you, you got to realize that you're not working for the return, you're working for the master. What we have been given in this life does not belong to us. And so when we cast our bread upon the waters, when we plant our seed in the ground, it is not bread that even belongs to us. It is bread that God has given me to send out for return. And he is the one who's going to determine what the return will be and when it will take place. I'm not working for my portfolio. I'm working for his. And so God tells me every single day, whatever I have given you, you invest it. Whatever I've given you, you plant it. 
Whatever I have handed to you, you take good care of it and you work hard with it because I am in control, not you, and I'm gonna determine where and when the fruit comes. Here in these verses, he talks about clouds and rain, right? He says, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. What he's talking about here is the fact that there is much in our life that is completely out of our control. I cannot control how a tree is going to fall in the forest. I cannot control when a cloud is going to come and pour down rain. And sometimes that's a good thing, right? For a farmer, you need rain. Other times, too much rain causes flooding. I can't control it. And so an unwise farmer would just sit on his porch and go, well, I don't really know how the weather's going to go, so I'm not going to plant this year. Uh, He says, he who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. If I'm just sitting there trying to predict everything so that I can control when the return is going to, okay, I got to wait for things to be absolutely perfect. I got to wait for things to be exactly as I need them to be. Then I'll work and then I'll get what I'm supposed to get back. He says, if you do that, if you, if you live that way, you are never going to get any return whatsoever and you will be that wicked, lazy servant. So then look at what he says in verses five and six. And this is where we have our hope. This is where we have our hope, okay? Verse five, as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the, wo- in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. As you don't know how, how, the, how the spirit enters, and guess what? scientifically, we still don't have that information. Here we are thousands of years later, we still can't put an ultrasound in front of a womb and go, oh, that's when the spirit comes in. We don't know. God is the one who's doing this. God is the one who's creating this. God is the one who's behind it. And so he says, you don't know the work of God who makes everything. You don't know what he's doing. You don't know what he's accomplishing. You don't know what fruit he's producing. You might be looking out and saying, I don't see anything. You might be looking out and saying, I've been working hard and I've got nothing to show for it. And God says, you've been faithful, right? Are you being faithful? You let me take care of the return. Are you being faithful? You let me take care of what happens because I'm doing stuff over here that you cannot see. I'm doing stuff over here that you have no idea about, that you will not have any idea about until you stand before me in heaven and I I point back and I go, this is what it was. And at that point, you're gonna go, well, if I had any idea that that was gonna happen, then I would have never complained about pushing the boulder up the mountain. And God says, I, I, I asked you to just push the boulder. That's it. Be obedient. So you work faithfully. You work hard knowing that even if you cannot see the return, God is at work. God is at work. So, verse 6, in the morning, sow your seed. Evening, do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. 
armed with the knowledge that God is in control. You be wise, you work hard, and you trust God. You get up in the morning and you invest. You get up in the morning and you plant. And you tend and you water and you push critters away. You get up in the morning and you look at that boulder and you go, here we go again. And you start pushing. And you push and you push and you push. And you get to the top of the mountain and you see it roll down again. All right, time to start over. And you grab that boulder and you push and you push and you push. Because you don't know which will prosper. This or that. Or whether both alike will be good. Be wise. Work hard. Trust God. Point number two. There is joy to be found in boulder rolling. If the rolling is not the point. There is joy to be found in boulder rolling, if the rolling is not the point. See, once again, in the myth of Sisyphus, the issue there, the, the punishment there, was that this was an entirely pointless task. It, it was chosen because, in the story, it accomplishes nothing. It changes nothing. It, it creates nothing new. There, there, is, there is no good thing that comes out in this story of pushing a boulder up a mountain and watching it roll back down again. It's entirely pointless because in that story, the point is moving the rock. And moving the rock back and forth from one point to another is no different than picking something up to put it down somewhere else in order to just pick it up and put it back where you found it. If the moving of the thing is the point, if the doing of the task is the point, there's no joy in it. Solomon spent six chapters explaining that. Because if all that you're doing is marrying yourself to a task, and he names some of them, right? Accomplishing stuff at work. Making a difference in the world. Having some sort of a relationship. All these different things that that we try to find meaning in are like pushing boulders up a hill. We're, We're doing a task that ultimately doesn't change anything. We're doing a task that, that even if I've accomplished something great, he says that, that great accomplishment, the, the, the waves of time are just going to wash it away. You're going to die and it's all going to be gone. The boulder's going to roll back down the mountain. He spent six chapters saying, if pushing the boulder is the point, well, then it's bubbles. It's meaningless. It's, it's, it's vanity. But if it's not the point... If, if rolling the boulder isn't actually the point, if, if rolling the boulder is something that's done for, for, for what really is the point, well, then joy can be found in the boulder rolling. We have to ask ourselves the question, why are you here on earth? What is, what is your purpose for being on this planet? Is it to accomplish something? Here? Is it to fix the brokenness? Is it to clean the dishes and then never use the dishes again so that they can remain completely clean forever and always as they sit in the cabinet? No. 
your purpose on earth, all of us, every single person, you watching online, all of us are here on this earth for one reason and one reason alone. You are here to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's it. All of life, all of life can be summed up in that statement. You are here to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is your purpose in life. And in that, you are also trying to lead others to do the same. You, you realize your own purpose, and then you try to get other people to recognize that that's their purpose in life too. Every single one of us have the same purpose, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so what that means is, if that is our purpose, then in our work, in, in our boulder rolling, whatever that is, we have to have that eternal perspective. And when we do have that perspective... Look at what it leads to. Verse 7. Light is sweet. It is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. It's a joy to be alive. He's saying it's a joy to be alive. Light is sweet. Walking out and seeing the sun and knowing that you have another day under it is a gift. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Again, Solomon is never trying to bring us to a point where we just throw up our hands and go, well, nothing here matters. I'm just waiting for heaven. He says, no, let him rejoice in every single year that he's got. Let him rejoice in every day that he gets to live. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many and all that comes is bubbles. Enjoy your life. But remember, this is not all that there is. This is passing away. This is here today and gone tomorrow. Enjoy every moment that you've got, but don't make these things the point. Don't marry yourself to these things. Don't think that getting the boulder to the top of the hill is finally gonna make you happy. But rejoice in the days that you have. Verse nine, rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. But know, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remember, the way you live matters. What you do has a purpose. You are going to stand in front of the master and he's going to ask you, what did you do with the talent that I handed you? What did you do to invest? Did, did you cast your bread on the waters? Did, did you wake up every morning and plant the seed? Did, did you continue to push the boulder up the hill because I asked you to? Remember, all these things God will bring you into judgment. What this tells us is that we're not working to roll the boulder. We're, we're not working for clean dishes, Right? We're not working to, to do everything that we can to make sure that the dishes are clean. And then we see that the dishes are dirty and we throw up our hands and go, why did I even wash these dishes in the first place? I'm so frustrated at the mess that's in my kitchen. The reality is, I look at the dishes today in the sink, strewn about in the kitchen, 
And what do I think about? What I think about today, and, and hopefully this perspective lasts, all right? This is just in this moment. But when I look at those dishes on the counter and in the sink today, I think about last night. Why are these dishes dirty? Because last night, I cooked and performed a DIY hibachi dinner in my kitchen. My wife and my children sat at the, at the, the, the island in our, in our kitchen while without any practice prior whatsoever, I tossed and caught eggs on a spatula. And, and I, I threw them up and caught them in my hat. I was wearing a... I was wearing a pink I Love Lucy chef's hat, all right? It was dope. I was pulling it off. I promise you that, okay? If anyone has ever looked cool in a pink Lucy hat, it was your boy, all right? And, and I, I tossed eggs, and w- at one point I threw one up so high that it crushed on the ceiling, and I'm like, that's not what I meant to do, okay? At one point I, I took a, a piece of shrimp, and I popped it up in the air, and Allison caught it. At, at, at one point, I even attempted to do the, the famous onion volcano, you know, where, where they stack up the onions and then they, they pour in the oil and, and the fire shoots out of the onion. I kind of pulled it off, all right? I was able to achieve the two-foot flame. It wasn't all contained in the onion, all right? But it was fun to look at. And, and Eli was kind enough to, to give it a five-star rating, all right? He's like, five stars out of five. What a cool flame, it worked, and we ate a delicious meal, and, and, and we had fun. We laughed a lot. We had great memories, and now the kitchen is a disaster. <laughs> it is an absolute wreck. What was the point of all the hard work that I did to clean the kitchen when now the kitchen is no longer clean? The point was to enjoy what God had given me to the fullest. The point was to, was to do exactly what, what he says in verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. If a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Put on a pink hat and throw eggs at the ceiling because God has given you the gift of today. As I was reading um, stuff about the myth of Sisyphus this week. I stumbled upon this essay um, by a guy named Rick Garlikoff, whose name sounds kind of like what I was cooking last night. And as he was talking about this myth of Sisyphus and, and, and the fact that it seems so pointless because he's just doing the same thing over and over and over again. He's just repeating it over and over. It seems futile. It's It's futility. But he argues in this essay that it's not really futile. If you look at it the right way, it's not really pointless to do something over and over and over again. Doing something over and over and over again doesn't make something pointless. He says this, the fact that he has to do it all over again does not diminish its value or his happiness. Because there are many things that we do repeatedly to obtain joy or satisfaction, and we do not lament having to do so. Repeated joy or repeated success is not a source of frustration or futility. Sex, for instance. I agree. Good food, 
convivial companionship, humor, restful sleep, breathing, excitement, anticipation, games and sports. There's nothing about simply having to repeat something that necessarily makes it bad or that makes it not worth doing any of the times or all of the times. The fact that Sisyphus has to push the rock up the mountain repeatedly is not what makes it a bad task. And I agree with that so much. The fact that we have to do things over and over and over is not what makes it bad. What makes something bad is if it is truly without point. And without God, that's exactly what it is. Without God, it is just pushing a boulder up a mountain with no point whatsoever. But when we push our boulders, there is joy in the boulder rolling because we know that there is more to what we are doing than what it seems like we are doing. For example, every time you push up that boulder, you get stronger. The world is a gym, and by pushing up that boulder, your muscles get bigger. Every time you reach the mountaintop, you can celebrate success. You can look out, even if it's momentary, even if you know it's not going to last very long, you can stand on that mountain and you can look out at what God has created. You can stand and enjoy the mountain air and the view and celebrate victory. You can take an easy walk back down the mountain, even though you know that once you reach the bottom, you're going to have to do it again. There's also joy in knowing that unlike Sisyphus, you won't be doing this forever. The things that seem pointless right now, you know, I have eternal perspective. I know that there's only 70 or so years that I'm going to have to do this. And I won't see the return fully until I get to heaven. But I know that this is not forever. I know that this, for me as a Christian, is as close to hell as I will ever be. So I have nothing to worry about. I have nothing to worry about. The worst that I ever have to have in my fate is just pushing a boulder, knowing that there's eternal purpose behind it. I know it won't last. I also know that because God is in control and he has a purpose for doing the things that I'm doing, even if it just seems like I'm doing a pointless task over and over, I know that it's accomplishing things in eternity. And that ultimately leads to this thought. If, if you are trying to find your purpose and your joy in keeping the rock at the top of the hill, you will never be satisfied. If you are trying to find your purpose and joy in making an eternal difference in the broken system, it's never going to happen. If you are trying to find your purpose and your joy in reaching the top, before long you'll be back at the bottom. Tom Brady is in the Super Bowl next week or two weeks from now for the 10th time. But you know what? At some point, he no longer will be. (laughs) Someday, maybe in his 70s, he will no longer be playing in the Super Bowl. What then? If you are trying to find your purpose and your joy and your satisfaction in keeping that rock at the top of the hill, and you're you're doing everything you can to make sure that it never falls back down, you will never be satisfied and you will always see every bit of your labor as futile, as toil, because you cannot stop it from rolling back down the hill. 
But if your joy is found in faithfulness to God, if, if your joy is found simply in the fact that you are faithful to Jesus, you will continue to do whatever he asks you to do. You will keep rolling that rock because even if you can't see the purpose behind it, you know that there is one. And you know that someday you're going to stand in front of God and he's going to look back at your life and he's going to point to things and you're going to go, oh, that's why you had me pushing the rock. I knew that there was a reason behind it. I didn't see it at the time and I thought you were crazy. I thought you were asking me to do some really dumb things. Like in the stories in the Bible when when God tells the Israelites to do ridiculous things like, here's what I want you to do. I want you to just march around Jericho and then on the seventh day, yell really loud. That didn't make any sense. Uh, Here's what I want you to do, Moses. I want you to stand at the edge of this river and just hold your hands up. Okay, that, that doesn't make any sense. All right, what I want you to do is, is push this boulder up to the top of this mountain. Why? Because he said so. <laughs> because he said so. And because he has promised that there is eternal joy and purpose in enjoying him and, in glor- and in glorifying him forever. And one day beyond the sun, we will get the investment. We will see the return in the investment. One day, beyond the sun, we will eat of the fruit. So keep pushing the boulder. Keep rolling it up the hill. Keep casting your bread upon the water. Keep sowing the seed. Because in his time, the joy will come. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this word. (sighs) Word that I need so bad for me. Word that I need to encourage my spirit. God, I know that I'm not the only one. I know that I'm not the only one who is toiling in seeming futility, wondering why am I doing this? Why am I banging my head against the wall every day. God, I pray that for any person who's feeling that right now, God, that you would bring encouragement, that you would bring peace, that you bring joy, eternal perspective. Help us to, to bring our eyes, our, our gaze above the sun. And in doing so, Lord, that as we bring our gaze back down, that we would enjoy every single day that we've got that our hearts would be occupied with joy and that we work hard and we keep pushing the boulder up the mountain knowing that you have eternal reasons and good things and a promised return for every bit of that hard work. God, I pray especially right now for any person who is only pushing a boulder with no purpose, who is truly living out the curse of Sisyphus, living a life that does not have eternal purpose because they have never given their heart to Jesus. God, I pray for those people who are trying to to find their their hope in, in, in worldly things, 
and having a good family and having a good job and in accomplishing things and in being a good person and whatever it is, Lord. God, I pray that you would convict those people right now, that you would call them with your kindness to repentance, that, that you would offer to them hope in the midst of their toil. That you would say there is more for you that I have purchased with my blood. And God, I pray that those people today surrender. God, I pray that if there are any who you are leading to do so, God, that they would reach out. They would send me a message that, 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 you, that, you, that you would have them reach out to somebody else who, who is a part of the kingdom so that we can walk them through what it means to surrender to you. But God, I pray for every single one of us, Lord, that, that we would toil with eternal hope in mind, eternal fruit that will grow in your timing and help us to just keep pushing and to enjoy every step along the way. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you would stand, we will.